I'm very pleased to be introducing Mr. Ned Sublett. Ned Sublett was born in Lubbock, Texas. He is a composer, record producer, musician, and musicologist. During the 1980s, he led the Ned Sublett Band. And in 2006, Willie Nelson released Sublett's song, Cowboys Are Frequently Secretly Fond of Each Other. He is the author of two books about New Orleans, The World That Made New Orleans from Spanish Silver to Congo Square, and of course, his latest, The Year Before the Flood. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Ned Sublett. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's, uh, it's an honor and a responsibility to be uh, opening this conference today with a keynote. Uh, you're in for a treat. There's some very high-powered people back there. I was listening to them talk in the green room and uh, hurriedly, like, correcting my talk and like, listening to what they have to say. I think you're going to have a. Uh, I think you're going to have an interesting afternoon. Uh, as he, as Gregory said, this this conference isn't about New Orleans. Uh, really, but I'm going to start by locating it in New Orleans because that's been what my work's been about last uh, few years, and that's certainly what I'm feeling. Uh, keynote is the pitch you play for an a cappella group before you all sing together. So let me see if I can. There we go. That's a keynote. To tune us all up, I'd like to quote a record released by local music hero James Andrews, also known as Twelve. Uh, I would play the whole song for you, but there isn't time for that, so I'll just talk a little of it. It's called One, Two, What You Gonna Do, and it goes, So much happened since the levees came down. They put the FEMA trailer on the Indian ground. They got kids killing kids over the rock. They got Mexican workers. They punching the clock. I said one. Get ready now. Two. One. Two. What you going to do about it? What you going to do about it? In New Orleans, you got to start with music. I gather that there are a number of people attending this conference today who aren't New Orleanians, so I'd like to begin running down a few things that might not be obvious if you haven't lived here. Um, let's start with this. New Orleans is sacred ground for African-American culture. It's literally sinking. It's a drained swamp that is not exactly built on land. It's a traumatized town, not once, but repeatedly, and not only from physical disaster, but from the ongoing legacy of slavery and its uh, consequent uh, Jim Crow, or as Douglas Blackman suggests we call it, neo-slavery. No community here has been more traumatized than the African-American, whose degradation in 2005 was witnessed by the global television audience and which has been struggling ever since. And this is an inspiring town, which is unfortunately the victim of an embargo by the United States government. And I'll say more about that in a moment. Um, one of the first things you run up against in New Orleans is the concept of the outsider. To be mayor of New Orleans, you have to have lived here for five years. There are people who'd feel better if the law said your grandfather had to be born here. This is a problem right now because New Orleans is about to have a mayoral election and there are basically no candidates. Um, I can't do it. I live in New York City. Um, I wouldn't be very good at it anyway, but I did live in Louisiana as a child, though not in New Orleans, and my wife and I lived here the year before the flood. I was a Tulane Rockefeller Humanities Fellow, was my title, researching the city's history. We relocated back to New York at the end of my fellowship year, three months before New Orleans was inundated. I come back to town as often as I can, and I've written two books about the city as well as one about Cuba, so I've been promoted to the status of insider-outsider which perhaps makes me useful as a translator between realities. 
One of the first things I noticed upon coming here in 2004 to live for a year was that whereas in New York City I was used to a multicultural reality, and in particular many of my friends in New York being Latinos of various skin tones, here I was in New Orleans back in a place where it often seemed like there were only two kind of people, white and black. Um, Andre Perry back uh, in the green room was referring to this as the black-white paradigm. Um, I sort of felt like, oh shit, I'm a white person now. Um, I hate it when that happens. Uh, black friends from other places have, who've come here have told me they also felt something similar, uh, albeit from a different perspective. People who don't fit into that scheme tend to be invisible. Uh, consider that this is a state where in 1991, 671,000 people voted for David Duke, an out-and-out Klan and Nazi-affiliated racist to be their governor. Politically, New Orleans is a black island with a white state on one side and the sea at its back. Consider that in the last presidential election, John McPalin took 59% of the votes statewide in Louisiana versus 41% for Barack Obama, whereas in Orleans Parish, Obama took 81% of the vote. That tells you a lot of what you need to know right there. Only a small portion of the New Orleans population is Latino, but it's growing. Construction and painting contractors were definitely employing Mexican and Central American laborers here the year before the flood. But that post-flood fixture of New Orleans life, the taco truck, did not exist here five years ago. Those stretches of taquerias didn't exist, like the ones on Carrollton, that in the words of a New Orleanian friend of mine popped up like mushrooms after a rain. In 2007, Jefferson Parish, historically the extreme case of a white suburb to a chocolate city, banned taco trucks, ostensibly citing health concerns, which is ludicrous if you've ever checked out some of the po'boy joints on Airline Drive. And in New Orleans itself, there's been another kind of friction. We have a couple of provocatively titled panels uh, coming up, and I'm mostly going to stay away from encroaching on territory I think they'll cover. But I want to begin by underscoring the obvious, that what happened here after the flood was a classic example of pitting one ethnic group against another in a race to the bottom for working conditions. In short, capitalism. The awarding of fat contracts to crony companies by the Bush-Cheney administration is a scandal that I don't believe has been sufficiently aired out. But suffice it to say that these companies, some of the same ones that made out so well in Iraq, typically subcontracted their Gulf Coast work, in some cases to companies that subcontracted further. And at the bottom of that chain was the undocumented laborer, or maybe the exiled citizen laborer living in a FEMA trailer that proved to be a gas chamber. New Orleans was largely built by first enslaved and subsequently dirt-cheap black labor, but African Americans have civil rights now. Working people with families need social services, places to live, schools for their children, hospitals to go to. In a humane society, citizens have that. None of that was forthcoming after the flood. It was cheaper and politically preferable to use migrant laborers who mostly don't bring families, can live in ghastly conditions, squatting even eight men to a room, scrimping and saving money to send back home, doing toxic work in violation of workplace protection laws with key labor provisions waived by President Bush. They can be stiffed by the employer with little or no legal recourse, and very important, they don't vote here. African Americans don't vote Republican, but undocumented laborers don't vote, period. So if you were a Republican officeholder, how would you want the demographics of New Orleans to go? Before the flood, Louisiana had a Democratic governor, now it has a Republican one. And not to put too fine a point on it, the present governor of Louisiana does not seem to be much of a friend of New Orleans, a city which is pointedly not his constituency. This is still a black majority city. I don't want to pretend things are simpler than they are, but in thinking about what happened in New Orleans, 
Never lose sight of the fact that members of the state's major black voting bloc were given one-way tickets out of the city and scattered around the country to destinations not of their choosing. Children affected by the 2005 disaster, which I refuse to call Hurricane Katrina, were enrolled in schools in 46 different states, except for 10,000 or so child evacuees who were not enrolled in school anywhere, which is, I guess, why the bridge of James Andrews's tune says, we lost a whole generation, misplaced children with no education, one, two, one, two, what you gonna do about it? What you gonna do about it? I haven't heard a recent number, but as of summer 2008, the estimate was that New Orleans was back up to 72% of its former population, but only about 63% of African Americans had returned, which is to say more than a third of the black community still in exile. Many people, though not all, and no one knows how many, are still trying to get back. I have a friend who's moving back into his home next month. You all probably have similar stories. He's been in a trailer all this time. People who lived in the big four projects, Lafitte, St. Bernard, Magnolia, part of Calliope, had their homes bulldozed by the U.S. government, as the Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives had recommended be done for the whole city. There's construction going on, and it's going to be going on for years. There's work for people who will do hard labor for low pay. If you go to Home Depot or Lowe's in the morning, you'll see dozens of able-bodied Spanish-speaking men waiting around to get hired for the day. And it's not just unskilled workers, it's tradesmen, too. A New Orleans plumber was complaining the other day that his ability to make a living has been undercut by the cheaper competition. Meanwhile, if you went to Carnival Latino last weekend where the U.S.-Honduras soccer match was playing on a large screen, you saw two parking lots full of vehicles and a lot of people wearing the Honduran team's jersey. In Kenner, where the airport is, you hear a lot more Spanish spoken these days. But then, it's not exactly a new thing to hear Spanish spoken around here. And that's my cue to unpack some history. Any history of New Orleans needs to mention the world's industrial and cotton centennial exposition. Ballyhooed is the first American World's Fair. It opened on December 16, 1884. It was New Orleans' entry in the great age of expositions and showed the world that the economy of New Orleans had recovered from the Civil War. That was a big year, that 1884-85 season. That was the year that the Black Social Aid and Pleasure Club, known as the Young Men Olympian Junior Benevolent Association, paraded for the first time. And 1884 is still alive in New Orleans. Three weeks ago, Young Men Olympians celebrated their 125th anniversary with a massive Sunday afternoon second line, which is an ambulatory rolling block party through African-American neighborhoods that attracts thousands of people. This one featured six brass bands. It was at the 1885 Mardi Gras that the Creole Wild West first paraded. Inspired by Buffalo Bill's Wild West show, which appeared in New Orleans in tandem with the Cotton Exposition, the Creole Wild West was the first formalized group of Mardi Gras Indians, black men dressing in costumes inspired by Plains Indians. It was a new form for something that went back much further, and the Mardi Gras Indians still rock the city today, still expressing the African-American community's refusal to cooperate in its own erasure. Among other things, the Cotton Expo brought the saxophone to town, and it came from Mexico. With an eye to increasing commerce via new railroad connections to the U.S. and a hoped-for reciprocal trade treaty, Mexico mounted what was practically its own national exhibition at the 1884-85 Cotton Expo. The undisputed musical star of the exposition was the Grand 8th Regiment Cavalry Band of the Mexican Delegation, better known as the Mexican Band. Its presence in New Orleans completed the Gulf of Mexico cultural triangle of Havana, Mexico, Louisiana. Its repertoire, which included danzas and habaneras, bore the influence of Cuba. 
A vogue for Mexican music swept New Orleans. A local music publisher, Junius Hart, inaugurated a Mexican series of sheet music. In the long run, the Mexican band's presence had a significant impact on the music of New Orleans in the days before the emergence of jazz. An unknown number of band members stayed behind when the exposition ended, which is how New Orleans got its first saxophone player of importance, Florencio Ramos. We speak a lot about Creoles in New Orleans. Again, the word here doesn't mean what it means elsewhere. Here, Creole means someone of French ancestry or of Spanish ancestry, like Lorenzo Tio, senior and junior, prominent musicians and music teachers in New Orleans in the late 19th, early 20th century. Their family came from Spain to New Orleans in the early 19th century, then relocated to Mexico in the 1850s and moved back to New Orleans about the time of the Cotton Expo. Many people thought of them as Mexicans. Taking music lessons from Mexicans was part of the training of a number of young players who became the first generation of New Orleans jazz musicians. Then along came Jelly Roll Morton, San Domingan descended on both sides who played habanera prominently with his left hand, boom, 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 in what he famously called the Spanish tinge. As he put it, if you can't manage to put tinges of Spanish in your tunes, you'll never be able to get the right seasoning, I call it, for jazz, close quote. But the connection was much older than that. In the 19th century, New Orleans was the major destination in the country for immigration, behind New York. In the 1840 census, New Orleans was almost tied with Baltimore for second largest city in the U.S. The Catholic cities of Baltimore and New Orleans did a great deal of business, notably the ocean-going slave trade, which began in Baltimore and ran to New Orleans. More slave ships came here from the east coast of the United States than from Africa. New Orleans was almost as polylingual as that great polylingual city, New York. A visitor to New Orleans in 1834 remarked that, quote, many Negroes speak three languages in such a manner as to defy you to tell which one of the three is their vernacular. One of those languages, the least extensively used but always spoken in the city, was Spanish. Louis Morrow Gottschalk, the New Orleanian who was the United States' first great pianist, who as a child lived on Rampart Street, published Ojos Criollos, Danse Cubain, Creole Eyes, a Cuban dance, in New Orleans in 1860. It sounded very much like ragtime. But it was 35 years before the ragtime boom happened elsewhere, and it was a danse cubain. The rhythm was basically the same as Jelly Roll's Spanish tinge, which is also what reggaeton is today, the same beat that's been bouncing around for 300 years. If you go up St. Charles, named for King Carlos IV of Spain, it's the grand boulevard of what used to be the English-speaking part of town back when the part below Canal Street was known as the French Quarter because people there spoke French. A couple blocks over from that, you're in the hardcore hood known as Central City. The town's heaviest ghetto exists alongside historic mansions. Why is that? Well, it takes a big staff to run those big houses, and New Orleans always needed its cheap black labor close at hand. During the 1920s, Congress drastically curtailed immigration to the U.S., and in the 1930s, the United States had a strong union movement. These two facts were not unrelated. Conditions for workers were negotiated that were the envy of the rest of the world. After winning World War II, the country was as united as it ever got, as much of a nation as it's ever been, reaching new heights of prosperity. But this feeling of general well-being was not extended to African Americans, who were literally second-class citizens. They hadn't been slaves for a century by then, but under a color-coded caste system called race, a word with no useful biological meaning, 
They were a legally distinct class whose access to education and whose participation in the professions was very largely blocked. We heard a lot of talk here after the flood that, well, it's not race, it's class. But what is race if not a class? My years of historical research have strengthened a conviction I already had that racism is more than ignorant individual prejudice. Racism is a system that encourages and organizes that prejudice with the ultimate end of having a subservient class that will work cheap. What is happening to Latino laborers right now is racism in action. The attainment of civil rights for African Americans, sometimes referred to as the Second Reconstruction, was perhaps the great social achievement of the 20th century if we had to pick one. It's no accident that along with strong unions and civil rights, there came a loosening of United States immigration laws. A new class of cheap laborers would be needed. Legal immigration from around the world surged after the Immigration and Nationality Amendments of 1965 removed quotas for individual countries and allowed people from the so-called third world to enter. Uh, one of the early entries was Barack Obama's father. Meanwhile, the Bracero program, begun in 1942, had been bringing in large-scale immigration of Mexican agricultural contract laborers. By the 60s, there was also a massive illegal flow of Mexican agricultural workers across the border, which kept on keeping on in the years that followed. As the demographics of United States cities and ultimately even small towns changed, New Orleans was largely left out of that transformation. The city's economy was in decline. It didn't offer jobs. New Orleans had been an immigration magnet when it was a port for steamships. But when immigration opened up in the 60s, people went to the airplane cities. Houston developed a Nigerian community. People went to Miami, New York, Los Angeles, places where a relative or friend perhaps already had established a beachhead. Except for a Vietnamese community resettled in New Orleans after imperial misadventure, a community which has now elected a Republican congressman, An Gao, the immigration that transformed the United States beginning in the 1960s by and large did not come to this former immigration center. By the time of the flood in 2005, if you lived here, Black or white, very likely your grandfather did too. The place with the least solid ground in the country had the most deeply rooted people. We say that in New Orleans the past is always present. This is one way we've been living in the past here, but now we're a little more like the rest of the country. At this point, I'd like to address one of my pet peeves. A lot of people like to speak of New Orleans as the northernmost town of the Caribbean. That sounds good, but there's one problem with it. It's not true. Look at a map. New Orleans is not on the Caribbean. It's on the Gulf of Mexico. The idea of Caribbean culture has been romanticized, even by Caribbean studies departments. I jokingly call it Caribbean imperialism. Pirates, rum, to the point where everyone wants to be part of it and the tourism it brings. But what's wrong with being on the Gulf of Mexico? And what does it mean that New Orleans is on the Gulf of Mexico? When I moved here in 2004, I was somewhat bewildered to find that New Orleans had far less of a Caribbean population than I'd expected. I think I met one Jamaican here the whole year, and he subsequently moved to New York, where there are hundreds of thousands of Jamaicans. Only a handful of Haitians lived here that year before the flood. No major salsa band played in New Orleans the whole year I lived here, except for Victor Manuel at Jazz Fest. My stay in New Orleans was hosted by Tulane University's Stone Center for Latin American Studies. And I was surprised to learn that although Tulane had the oldest Latin American Studies program in the nation, the Latin population of New Orleans was only about 3% Latino, maybe 4%. And maybe half of that was Honduran. Not Cuban, not Puerto Rican, not Mexican, Honduran. Well, that was a Caribbean population, but what was that about? Why Honduras? 
Part of what that was about was that New Orleans was the home of the tropical fruit trade in the United States. Honduras was the original Banana Republic, so nicknamed by O. Henry in 1902. When bananas first became to be a consumer item in the 19th century, they came in through New Orleans. The connection was much older than the 1960s. United Fruit Company boats tied New Orleans to Honduras early on, and there was a triangular trade with Cuba. Boats would bring fruit to New Orleans and load up with products from the United States to take to Havana. It was relatively easy to get to New Orleans from Honduras, and a community grew, endured, maintained relationships with the home country, and over time became part of the city, generating highly educated professional people as well as working class people. Mostly they were citizens. There was also a Cuban community, but after the break in relations occasioned by the Cuban Revolution, it faltered. Now Cubans went to Miami. But the New Orleans Cuban community goes all the way back. The importance of the city of New Orleans, back when it was becoming a city of importance in the late 18th century, was its connection to Havana. A city which in turn first became important back in the 16th century because it had a better bay than Veracruz and basically served as Mexico's port. As Mexico and Peru became the primary sources of money supply to Europe's developing industries during what is remembered as the Siglo de Oro, all that raw money moved through Havana. The fleet left every year for Sevilla, ships that were low riders in the water because they were so loaded down with Mexican and Peruvian silver. Louisiana became a Spanish colony in 1762 when the French King Louis XV handed it over to his Bourbon cousin, King Charles III of Spain, as compensation for the loss of Havana to the British that year. Louisiana was the last colony Spain took on, and it didn't remain a Spanish colony long. It was the only colony Spain acquired rather than created, and it inherited a mostly French-speaking population that was determined to remain French, even though France didn't want them and had given them away. The language of Cervantes never dominated here, though for the last third of the 18th century, official documents were written in Spanish. It was during the Spanish period that English-speaking people started coming in from the north in some numbers. New Orleans was an essential part of the expansion of the United States past the Appalachians. In 1803, Napoleon arm-twisted Spain into giving him Louisiana back, and he held on to it for only 20 days before flipping it, handing it over to Thomas Jefferson's men, W.C.C. Claiborne, and once again bitterly disappointing New Orleans' French-speaking community. Louisiana was effectively a colony of Virginia before becoming the 18th state in 1812. New Orleans was suddenly the Deep South, the southernmost city of the United States. But it had previously been El Norte the day before, and it continued being El Norte. And today it's still both El Norte and the bottom of the map. Some people call New Orleans the least American city. I think it's the most American city, because I use the term American in its full hemispheric context. Broadly speaking, there are two great zones of cultural and musical practice in the hemisphere. There's the English-speaking, mostly Protestant zone, the United States, where the black music was melismatic, swinging, bardic, banjo and fiddle-based. And there was the Spanish, Portuguese, and Creole-speaking Catholic zone, which was polyrhythmic, syllabic, drum-based. These two broad zones of culture meet in New Orleans. Not only that, they met precisely at the former no-man's land that is now Canal Street, so that this city's music throbs with that tectonic interpenetration. Havana and New Orleans are natural trading partners, inseparably joined by geography. New Orleans is not located by chance, but by necessity at the end of the drain pipe for approximately 41% of the continental United States. 
Meanwhile, as the Caribbean flows northward past the Straits of Yucatan into the Gulf of Mexico, a current is created, the loop current, they call it, like an express lane in the sea that connected Veracruz with New Orleans, New Orleans with Havana, then supercharged out the Straits of Florida and out into the Atlantic where it becomes the Gulf Stream, the most powerful current in all the world's oceans, and leads directly back to Spain. It was easier in the 19th century to get across the Gulf from New Orleans to Havana than from Santiago de Cuba to Havana. New Orleans was the entrepot where agricultural and industrial products of the rich North American heartland could come to market, and equally important, it was a place where silver coin from the metal-rich Spanish world could be gotten in exchange for goods instead of questionable banknotes. During the Spanish years, the governor of Louisiana reported to the Captain General of Cuba in Havana. We could as easily call the Spanish period in Louisiana the Cuban period, or for that matter, the Congo period for the number of Afghans brought here during that time, with Congos as the largest single group, inaugurating a black cultural current between the two cities, one that also included the third leg of the triangle, Mexico. As English-speaking American settlers pushed past the Appalachians, New Orleans was the engine of economic development for the growing United States because it was where the agricultural and industrial products of the hinterlands got to international markets, down the Mississippi to New Orleans, onto Havana and beyond. The strong commercial and cultural ties between New Orleans and Havana lasted more than 190 years until the imposition of the embargo by President Kennedy in 1962 definitively shut the connection down. Prior to 1960, New Orleans was the jump-off spot in the United States for doing business with Latin America and especially with Cuba, right down to being the major troop transport point in what the U.S. remembers as the Spanish-American War. But the Cuban connection was not only commercial and military, it was cultural. A continual musical exchange between New Orleans and Havana went on in an open circuit. New Orleans hit its peak of population in the 1960 census, then declined concurrent with changes in Cuba. It's been declining ever since, though it's been recuperating since the sharp drop of 2005. A conjuncture of forces took New Orleans down. White flight to newly available suburbs following school desegregation, facilitated by a new interstate that ran right through the historic Treme disfiguring the oldest American residential district in the country, the failure to modernize the port and the arrival of container shipping, the relocation of energy industries to Houston and elsewhere, federal and state neglect, among other factors, including, and this one is rarely discussed, the disappearance of the city's great historic trading partner. The problems of New Orleans now are in part a testimony to the stupidity and wrongheadedness of 50 years' worth of the United States trying to ruin the economy of Cuba. In the process, it's also damaged the economy of New Orleans. And this has everything to do with the subject of our conference today, I believe. By 1961, Miami was the city that did Cuba biz, not New Orleans. Only it wasn't import-export anymore. It was spook biz and immigration biz. The CIA established its largest station anywhere in the world in Miami with some 400 agents, pumping millions of dollars into the South Florida economy through shell corporations. What had been a thriving trade between the U.S. and Cuba out of New Orleans, devolved into the anti-Castro industry, headquartered in Florida. It's been maintained all these years, the embargo, at the insistence of New Orleans' regional competitor, Miami, at New Orleans' expense, commercially, culturally, and even in terms of security. As everyone here is surely aware, President Obama spent four hours in New Orleans yesterday in which he promised to rebuild it stronger than before. At this point, I'd like to make my modest proposal for how to go about that, if we want to rebuild the economy of New Orleans and the rest of the U.S. Gulf Coast and even strengthen the economy of the Mexican side of the Gulf in the process, there's a very simple thing we could do, a total game changer. 
in the embargo of Cuba. It's a no-brainer. Cuba imports something like 80% of its food. It can get that food far cheaper from the U.S. than anywhere else, to say nothing of construction materials, pharmaceuticals, all sorts of other things Cuba needs. If beans come from North Dakota to Cuba, they're going to float down the Mississippi River. North Dakota Senator Byron Dorgan wants the embargo of Cuba repealed, and New Orleans wants to handle his beans. Former Louisiana Governor Kathleen Blanco in March 2005 braved some political heat to go on a three-day trade mission to Havana, where she had a private two-hour lunch with Fidel Castro. Representatives of New Orleans' regional competitors, Gulfport, Mobile, Pensacola, they've all done their best to woo Cuban business. It only makes sense to improve one side of the Gulf Coast economy, improve the Gulf Rim as a system. The logic of this is immediately obvious, painfully obvious if you think of the history of the last 50 years. Allow the northern rim of the Gulf of Mexico to trade with the southern rim. That was the historic recipe for prosperity back when both New Orleans and Havana were thriving ports. This would have the consequence that Cuba, with access to cheaper food, could better feed its population, and that would have the effect of helping Cuba's economy and making Cubans' lives better. But official United States policy is still to make Cubans' lives as miserable as possible, so they will rise up and overthrow their government. First part of that's been successful. We've made their lives miserable. The second part has been such a non-success that the Cuban revolution has remained in power through 11 U.S. presidencies. But harming the Cuban economy has had consequences beyond Cuba, and we've all developed amnesia about this. This is my takeaway for you all today. The embargo of Cuba is also an embargo of New Orleans. It's not going to be easy to lift the embargo, though it could be done tomorrow if there were political will. But culture can precede commerce. There's no reason we can't have full, open cultural interchange right now between the two great music capitals of Havana and New Orleans as a prelude to removing the travel ban entirely with the ultimate goal of retiring the U.S. embargo of Cuba to the closet of embarrassments it belongs in. Mayor Nagin is very unpopular in New Orleans, no question. Maybe widely hated would be a better term, but he's doing the right thing today by traveling to Cuba today with the police superintendent and other officials to discuss hurricane preparedness, and I hope his successor will follow up. This is not a foreign junket. This is checking in with next door for the first time in 50 years. If we can improve the prosperity of New Orleans and the prosperity of Havana at the same time and build up the region as a whole, there'll be more work for everybody. There are some hopeful signs that we'll have cultural interchange once again. Visas are being granted, but Havana's ready to jam, and so is New Orleans. This music-loving town is the natural focus for a major cultural bridge to its big sister city, a bridge that would hopefully take us into an era when we don't have to get our government's permission to travel to Cuba and where a whole new set of thriving industries could develop here. Best thing that could happen to New Orleans right now is to become more prosperous, and one way to do that is to open trade with Cuba. But one thing's for sure, more Spanish is going to be spoken in New Orleans, whether it comes in across the Gulf of Mexico or vile laborers who aren't going away. The race to the bottom for wages and working conditions is a serious social problem and not just in New Orleans. It's a problem for which no easy solution presents itself and which is immediately complicated by the vicious crossfire of U.S. politics in which any progressive initiative is immediately checked by right-wing reaction. What we need in New Orleans isn't to scapegoat the new arrivals. What we need is social justice and prosperity. I'm no, under no illusion that we're about to get that but perhaps some of our speakers today will have some good ideas as to how we can get closer. But meanwhile, Spanish-speaking newcomers are no threat to New Orleans culture. Quite the contrary, they represent what New Orleans has always been about. Let the culture flow.
Of course, beneath all this is the question of whether all those houses the laborers are so busy repairing can survive. The Gulf of Mexico now comes up to the ass end of the city, and it's being continually eaten away further. A football field every 50 minutes, they say. Wetlands restoration, crucial for buffering storm surge, hasn't begun, and the city is sinking. Will New Orleans even be here in 10 years? I hope so, but we better do more than hope. To quote James 12 Andrews, one, two, what you gonna do about it? Thank you. Thank you all for coming out. Uh, we're now opening, opening it to you all for questions and answers with Mr. Ned Sublet. Uh, I'm Oscar Garza. We know each other yes. a little bit. Um, talk a little bit about your uh, relationship to the city. You, you grew up a little bit in Louisiana in another part of the state. Um, and then when you came to do your fellowship here, um, how, much, how much now has the city seemed different to you today than it did when you were here for the better part of a year? Well, uh, my, my history in the city, I lived here the year before the flood, like I said. I lived until I was nine in Natchitoches, uh, which some of you may have been to. It's uh, 282 miles northwest of New Orleans and four years older. And it's, uh, you know, I grew up in the 50s. We moved away in 1960 when I was nine, uh, just before the New Orleans school desegregation battle erupted. So I grew up in a completely segregated apartheid white supremacist society. Um, and I, returned, I visited a couple of times in 1992. I spent 10 days here with uh, Robert Palmer, the writer, uh, who took me around and gave me a good start to the city. Uh, but I, I, I got to know New Orleans really after having gotten to know Havana, so I had that to bring to it also. Uh, but when I came back here as a man in, in midlife, you know, at the age of 53, Having lived in Louisiana for the first nine years of my life and kind of repressed it, I would kind of see these things that I would remember come back to me, uh, things I recognized that didn't have to be explained to me, like, for example, I knew what racism was, uh, and, and I could recognize it when I saw it. Um, but before and after five years change, um, the, the thing that inspires me is that New Orleans culture continues. It's so strong. And there's, you know, if you've been on a second line lately, you know what an essential feeling it is now, and you know how conscious the people who are, have to maintain the culture are of doing it. That's the one thing I noticed. The other, the, uh, and I also noticed that on the second lines, the vibe is a little different. It's um. It, there's, a, there's a little more of a sense, I may be imagining this, I feel like a little more of a sense of unity to them and a little, a little less of a, of a, of a sense of, of um, edge. I don't know how else to explain it, but um, these days a second line is a really interesting experience. And if, you, if there are any people here in, who live in New Orleans and have never been on a second line, I really uh, encourage you to go on one of the Sunday afternoon anniversary parades that you can find in some part of the city. Um, the other thing, of course, the other big change is um, the, the taco trucks and the, you know, the visible presence of Spanish. I was talking to a woman, um, a, a Cubana, yesterday who lives in Kenner, says, we used to drive to Houston to eat Mexican food. You know, uh, the year before the flood, there was very little in the way of Mexican food here, and now that's really not a problem. 
Uh, that's, those are a couple of things I see. Of course, it's a smaller town. Um, the stress, you know, it was a stressed out town before. I mean, the Big Easy is a, a it was a, I thought, a, a sardonic joke, because this is, seemed like a very stressed city to me. Uh, in some ways, it's more stressed now, but it's got that eternal New Orleans thing. I think the, I, I suspect that the, the this, this feeling of a, of a violent atmosphere and a joyous atmosphere, both oscillating, have probably been here all along. You're talking about the, the triangle. Yeah. And supposedly NAFTA was supposed to address at least the, the Mexican part of that triangle. Do you see that changing with the with an opening up of Cuba and kind of like it, the opening up of Cuba would happen in a completely would have completely different consequences. Um, the, for one thing, I mean. The opening up of Cuba right now would not entail large numbers of laborers coming here. Uh, it would not create a race to the bottom in the labor market. That simply wouldn't happen. Uh, for one thing, the Cubans wouldn't sign on to it. Um, it's, it's not going to happen. Uh, you might get some skilled professionals coming here, uh, Cuba being, you know, 90-something percent literate and having a, a serious uh, surplus of professionals uh, who really don't have enough work to do. Um, so you might see some of that, but I think it would play out in a very, very different way.